For the love of goats, we are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here is Deborah Neiman. Today's episode is brought to you by Goats365, my membership program for people who are living with, learning about, and loving goats 365 days a year. Basic members get access to six courses covering housing, fencing, parasites, nutrition, and health, as well as things like composting goat manure and the basics of starting a goat-based business. Premium members also have the opportunity to attend live online meetings via Zoom to talk about goats every month. Visit goats365.com to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. So far, I think this may be my most exciting episode when it comes to talking about breeds, because we're not actually talking about a breed today, but this is a registered goat. And that is that we are talking about experimental goats. And I wanted to make sure that I found someone to talk about this who didn't just have a couple experiment because experimental goats could be like, you know, your alpine buck jumped the fence and got into your La Mancha pasture and accidentally bred her. And so that's not a purebred anymore. So now it's experimental, but it was an accident. And who we are talking to today is somebody who actually embraces the whole idea of the experimental goat. And so this is going to be really fun. Today's guest is Erica McKenzie Chapter, and she is from Penny Royal Farm and Chev Noir Dairy. Welcome to the show today, Erica. Thank you for having me. I love the idea of not being encumbered by your goat looking a certain way or whatever. Bottom line for us, we like, we've always been super interested in milk. And one of the things that I loved about the Nigerians is that I knew I would never have to cull a really great goat because it was the wrong color or something like that, which it just irritated me. I thought, gosh, that must be so hard for people who have a breed standard that has appearance as a deciding factor and whether or not an animal is going to be disqualified or anything like that. So first of all, for people who are sitting there scratching their head going, I don't understand what's an experimental goat. Can you just talk a little bit about what that is and how we're not talking about like going down to the sale barn and just picking up some crossbred goat? Yeah. So experimental in terms of ADGA, the American Dairy Goat Association is they have to be dairy. So you can't have a Kiko cross with La Mancha or, you know, something with boar goat in the pedigree. These are completely dairy animals and they have to be a cross of the recognized dairy goat breeds. The exception being you can't cross a Nigerian dwarf with any of the standard sizes. So all the experimentals are a cross of two or more standard size breeds. And in terms of experimental, yes, you could have a, a 50-50 where the father was an Alpine, the mother's a La Mancha, but you could take that 50-50 half La Mancha, half Alpine, and breed her to a Nubian or to a La Mancha and end up with multiple breeds in the pedigree or, you know, a small percentage of La Mancha and a high percentage Alpine. Um, So it's any combination where 100% of the pedigree is known registered animals, but of crosses of breeds. So these are, these are dairy animals. It's just taking a wider gene pool and working with it for breeding. One of the reasons I'm so excited about talking about this, because I'm doing a series on goat breeds to help people pick a breed if they don't have one already. 
And I think a lot of people are like, oh, but I, I love the floppy ears on the Nubian and the little bitty ears on the Lamanta, but I, I like this. And, and so they think that they need to get three or four different breeds, which would mean if you want to keep them purebred, you have to have bucks for each of those different breeds. And then it gets really, it gets complicated, it gets expensive. And so experimental opens it up for people. Like if they're not really married to the idea of a specific look in a goat, if, if they're just really interested in the dairy, this really opens it up to them to not mm-hmm. have to worry about appearance. Yeah. And, and that is really where I, I embrace the experimental. Um, so I have a commercial dairy and we make cheese and so as much as I, I love my purebreds, I certainly think there's a place for the purebreds you want. I think it's good to preserve these genetics and, you know, who knows if something comes up in the future to have these, these disparate families of genes that you can go back to. But as a commercial dairy, there's value to different breeds. Um, you know, your Alpines and your Sonnens are really high milk producers, but your Nubians are higher in butter, fat, and protein. And so as a cheesemaker, I'm really looking for total fat and protein at the end of the day and a 4,000 pound milking Sonnen or Alpine at, you know, 2.8% protein, it's going to make about a hundred pounds of protein over the course of the lactation, but your Nubian who's down at, you know, 2,500 pounds for the lactation and up at three and a half percent protein or higher, is going to be doing 90 pounds. They're pretty close. So there's value to both those breeds in cheese making. And what I'm looking for is taking those two breeds and getting kind of a, a hybrid vigor, if you will, of crossing those high milk production animals with the high component animals. And it does come down to as well bucks. I could just have a dairy herd that is made up of purebred Alpines and purebred Nubians, but then I'd have to keep more bucks for each breed. And I'd, I'd have much faster that I was dealing with the con, you know, concerns of how overbred or inbred was I getting um, and changing out bucks more frequently. So by sort of embracing crossbreeding and experimentals, if I invest several hundred dollars in an Alpine buck, I have the freedom to breed him not only to my Alpine does, but to my La Mancha does, to my Nubian does. And then their offspring, if I breed them to a La Mancha, you know, I I can go back to the Alpine in a much shorter period of time. So I'm able, I think, to more, more effectively utilize the investment in my bucks that I'm getting because I tend to keep bucks for basically their lifetime. Once I've brought them in, if I've identified that they come from genetics that are going to improve in my herd, I, I want to use them as much as I can. So uh, yeah, the, the crossbreeding program really lets me sort of get the most out of those boys. And I, I like the variability. I, I came up at UC Davis as a student at the goat dairy there. And that because of the, the makeup of the herd, in the earlier years, there was a lot of crossbred animals. And so when we started a show team there, Jan Carlson, who was the facility manager at the time, kind of like, well, kids, you know, you know, this is a new herd. It hasn't been, you know, heavily selected for show animals. So let's start with the grades and the experimentals and just kind of get, get yourself comfortable with that. So it's sort of what I started with as a, you know, my experience with goats and showing. And so I just kind of kept going with that and, and really see the value of them as a commercial dairy making cheese. And so that's why I've stayed with them for so long. Okay. In our chat, before we started recording, I was shocked when you said that you have only been on milk tests since 2017, because I found you on the top 10 list and most people do not find themselves on the top 10 list 
And you know, that was the 2019 top 10 list. Like people do not normally start milk testing and then wind up with top 10 goats within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. How did that happen with you? Well, I, I definitely, so I started my herd in 2005 and I purchased animals initially from Redwood Hill Farm and also from UC Davis. So I was getting animals from farms that were on test to begin with. And so having worked at UC Davis at the goat dairy as a student, I'd been trained on here's milk testing. Here's why we do it. Here's what the information tells you. And I knew where that herd was. And I sort of said, okay, that's, that's where I want to at least start my own herd at in terms of baseline milk production. So, so I started my initial herd with, they were crossbreds. They were uh, fall crossbred kids from, from Redwood Hill Farm. But I started my herd from herds that had already been on milk testing for a very long time and had been selecting for milk production. So my, my initial herd, my starter herd came from good genetics. And I was able to sort of evaluate milk production kind of, you know, you look at a doe and if she's got a larger udder, you can kind of correlate that to higher milk production. So when I was making selection choices, I was using the visual that I could, but a couple of years in it became clear. I'm like, well, if I really want to take this, if I want to verify what I'm doing and then take this further, then you have to be on milk test. And so using that data uh, the last several years, I, I will look at who are my highest producers in the herd at the end of the year. And those are the ones that I'm keeping replacement daughters out of. I'm not keeping daughters out of everybody. I am really selecting for offspring out of the highest protein producers in the herd. And that's why I'm able to make an advancement in terms of milk production and quality of milk production each year. And yeah, so far we've, I've had multiple animals in the top 10 every year for, for all the years we've been on test so far initially just in my recorded grades and experimentals. Um, but I've started to have some of the La Manchas as well and a Nubian in there too, I think. So there I'm starting to get them selected as well. Um, but having started with grades, that's, that's definitely where the strength in my herd is, is in my, my experimentals. And when you say that you're selecting for protein, are you looking at the percentage or as a cheesemaker, are you looking at the pounds of protein that they produce in a year? I'm looking at total pounds of protein because percentage on its own is good information, but in terms of what that goat is contributing to the cheese vat, you know, in terms of total cheese yield, then I, I want to look at total pounds of protein, or at the very least have my percentage and total pounds of milk, because that'll give you total pounds of protein. Because if you've got a goat who's only milking 200 days out of the year, and yes, she might be four and a half percent butter fat and, you know, 3.9 protein, but she's only milked for 200 days. So I really am looking at that total production for the year to evaluate what her potential is for contributing kind of to future generations. Yeah. Years ago, when my daughters were still here and we were on milk test, there was a doe that was a terrible producer and I really wanted to sell her and we would have sold her except that my daughters were like, but mom, look at the milk test. She produces more pounds of butter fat than anybody. Yeah, I've, I've got some surprise goats where every year when I, so within um, DHIR, the program that I use, the lab that I use, uh, they let you kind of create your own reports. And so I've kind of created this report that I call my my replacement doe decision maker report. And so it pulls all of the ERPAs for protein and fat. So your expected reproducing abilities, 
and then it, it lists like their total protein and total milk production. And there have been some surprise ones in there where I'm like, I would not have thought just looking at her and I know her milk production. I mean, I just wouldn't have thought that she was a goat that I should be keeping offspring out of, but the numbers are there. And so, yeah, sometimes like you, you just have to see the number to know, you know, it is, it's data. It's, it's hard. So I like those numbers to sort of be like, Oh wait, I wouldn't have thought of her. And yet I really should be including this animal in my gene pool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the great things about milk test. I think a lot of people just look at it as a a way to get bragging rights, you know, to have a goat get a milk star or something. Mm -hmm. And I know that's why my daughters wanted to do it. But once we started getting the reports, I loved all of the data that you get because I mean, the lab can tell you things that you just can't see mm-hmm. by weighing the milk and looking at the goat and things like yeah. that. And especially for cheese making, they, they give you really important data. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think dairy farming is, is a spectrum. You have people who are, you know, a family of four and they have a pig and they have a goat and they're milking, you know, just for the family and, and making cheese just for the family. And so for them, you know, maybe a thousand pound milker is all you need or want. And then you have the cheesemakers, the commercial cheesemakers who want that fat and protein. And then you have the commercial dairies that are milking for fluid milk and they aren't as concerned about fat and protein and they want those four and 5,000 pound milking sonnets and alpine. So I think, yeah, the data is great because it really lets you move in the direction you need to go for what you're doing. And yeah, as a, as a cheesemaker, for me, it's that protein is the bottom line in terms of what justifies their expense in the herd. Certainly I do once in a while keep a pretty doe who maybe isn't the best milker because she, she has other quality, you know, she's got great feet and legs. She's a really strong doe. She's got great longevity. So I can't solely focus on milk production. I do have to kind of big picture, look at the the doe structure as well. Um, So I, I do try and not completely limit my focus to just what is the number on the report. But it's, it's definitely, I'd say 90% of my decision-making happens based on, on the data I get back from milk production. Can you tell us a little bit more about your dairy and the type of cheese that you make and how much cheese that you make? Yeah. So we're milking at peak, we'll milk 108 goats. We also have sheep and I milk 30 dairy sheep as well. And we're a seasonal dairy. So we start kidding and lambing typically in February, and then the sheep will milk through until September, generally, the goats all milk until December. And then we are making on the farm five, six varieties of cheeses. So I do a raw milk blue vein cheese called Boonter's Blue. I do a raw milk tome that we sell at a variety of ages called Boont Corners. I do two surface mold ripen types, one similar to a camembert called Velvet Sister. Another one actually apprenticed in France for a year as a cheesemaker. And that uh, Bali's Molly's is really an homage to the cheese I learned there. And then our sort of our chev style called lychee. So those are kind of our primary cheeses. And we are also a winery. Um, So my partner, I met my business partner in college. We were both in grad school at UC Davis and she was there for viticulture and enology. She's a winemaker, comes from a winemaking family. I come from a dairy farming family and we met, kind of became friends, bonded over animals so at one point post-graduation, she, she and I were communicating. She's like, hey, I have this crazy idea to start a goat dairy and, and creamery um, in conjunction with a new winery because it just makes sense to have those elements together. 
So I moved at that point, I was milking, I think 35 or 36 goats uh, and had heard of about 80 and working as a cheesemaker for someone else. And so I relocated my herd up here to Mendocino County and we began work building the barn, building the, and it was just kind of an open parcel. So building the barn and dairy and creamery from scratch. So we, we have both wine and cheese um, here at the farm and it's kind of worked out really nicely to, to marry the two. So that, that we've got both the sheep and the goats and making those five, five styles of cheese. Our peak production, I'll be, this year we were, our peak was in April at about 140 gallons of milk a day. And right now everybody's pregnant. Uh, I'm getting about 56 gallons of milk per day. So that's, there's quite a bit of variability in our production from, from start of season to end of season. And hopefully I'm going to have a couple milk throughs this year, but hopefully by December 22nd or so, we'll, we'll have stopped milking the bulk of the herd uh, and everyone kind of gets to take a, a winter break. It's nice to embrace the seasonality and, and say, you know, we don't have people coming by the farm to buy cheese this time of year. So January is our break everything down, clean everything up, get ready for the next season month. It sounds like such an amazing business concept and I wish I lived closer. I'd probably be there every weekend. <laughs> Are any of your cheeses aged so that like you can sell them in stores or anything like that? Through the yeah. Year? Yeah. No, we, our retail is fairly limited to Northern California, the San Francisco Bay area. We do ship direct. We actually have a cheese club. So we've got about 650 cheese club members around the country that we do five shipments of cheese a year to them. But in terms of store sales, predominantly the San Francisco Bay Area is where we are. Um, Certainly with COVID, we've seen a little bit of retraction in terms of store sales, restaurant sales, but our cheese club uh, expanded. Uh, We were at 550 club members um, prior to COVID. And so that expanded. So our direct sales have, have increased. And then we sell at the farm. We have a tasting room and we sell directly off the farm as well. Wow. That is so interesting. I love your business model. I think you're the first person I've talked to who's done something like a subscription model and that's really smart. I love that idea. It it was a good idea pre COVID and it was an amazing idea post COVID really having those members. It sort of, it guaranteed sales over the course of the year. We knew that we had people that were going to be buying cheese at different times of the year. So we were able to sort of stabilize production, knowing that, you know, we weren't going to have a bunch of people buying right when COVID hit and then no sales during the summer. We, we knew we had those customers. Certainly they like being members. We, we send out each shipment. Uh, I do photography around the farm of, of all the animals. And so each cheese comes with a card that has information about, you know, the specific animal whose photo is on the card, information about the batch of cheese, kind of what's happening at the farm, what's happening with the goats at that time. I've gone into great detail about breeding season and the smell of bucks and uh, reproduction and then also cheese, kind of cheese details. So they get all that with each shipment too. Oh, I love that idea. You've just described like the perfect marketing plan for direct to consumer for cheese. That's wonderful. So back to the goats. Well, this is so cool. I could talk about your business model all day. I love it. So back to the goats a little bit. If somebody is interested and thinks like, oh, well, okay, I can't decide what breed I want. So maybe I should be looking for experimental. What can somebody expect to pay for good quality experimental goats? Is it going to be really similar to what they would be paying for purebreds? I think it depends on 
it's going to parallel what happens in the purebred. Certainly, they're going to be a little bit less expensive, but quality is quality. And so if you are trying to buy an animal where you know the milk production records of relatives, if you're trying to show and you want to show and you want show quality animals, you know, experimentals are happening across the board. You have top breeders who are multiple time national champion winners that have experimentals and you have people who are just getting started with experimentals. And so I think the price is going to vary depending on where you're going. Certainly it's going to, it's going to be less. And I think, you know, the less that's known about the animal, the, the lower the price will be in it. And generally they're going to be a little bit cheaper than purebreds. If you're buying kids, I got lucky when I bought my first animals, it was a fall kid crop. They had put in a bunch of bucks with a bunch of kids and whatever bread was whatever bread. So it wasn't an intentional, we have this dough and wonder breeder to this buck. So a lot of dairies, really good dairies will do some crossbreeding just to get their, their fall milk supply. That's where I think you can kind of get really good animals for lower price point versus if it's, you know, spring kidding season and, and someone has their national champion experimental that that kid, it's going to still cost you, you know, maybe not as much as the La Mancha or Nubian national champion kid, but they're still going to cost you more. So I, I think at the, the higher end, I've sold experimentals for like $500, but then a lot of them, you know, when I'm selling kids at kidding season for other commercial dairies, they're going for 75. So it really depends on the genetics. Okay. I've noticed that quite a few dairies seem to like crossing La Manchas and Nubians. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, because there's a local dairy here that does that. I interviewed somebody a few weeks ago who, who does that. She has like mostly Nubians, but she brought in some La Manchas. Is there any particular cross that you think just gives you exactly what you're looking for? I really like a half La Mancha, one quarter Nubian, one quarter Alpine. I think that combo, you get the production of the Alpine Swiss breed, you get the fat of the Nubian and you get, I mean, certainly I think there's, there's a reason why La Manchas are very popular. They have great udder confirmation as a general rule. They have great, you know, structural confirmation as a general rule. So I think they give you just a really solid base goat that crosses really well with a lot of other breeds. And so I, yeah, I think you see a lot of, certainly it shows the people who are showing both experimental and have another breed somewhere. A lot of times they're La Mancha breeders because it's a good solid breed. And I think it crosses well, both ways, both going into Swiss and going into the Nubian. So the three breeds that I work with on our dairy are Alpines, Nubians, and La Manchas. And so I have purebred Alpines, a few of them. Um, I have purebred Nubians, quite a few. I've got a lot of purebred La Manchas and then I do the crossing. And so I like that, you know, half quarter quarter combo, but I will get to that many routes. So like I said, I don't want to pigeonhole myself on my bucks. And so if I've got a great Nubian buck, I'll breed him usually not to an Alpine. I don't like that first generation ear cross. We were talking about earlier about color and and not, you know, not wanting to disqualify an animal based on color. I do have certain ear types I'm not a fan of. Um, So usually I'll breed the Nubian to a La Mancha and then that one I'll bring to an Alpine to try and temper the ear a little bit. But I want to just use the bucks the best that I can. So I will breed my Nubian buck to a La Mancha. I'll breed him to a Nubian and then I'll breed that offspring to the Alpine. Um, But by the same token, I'll take my La Mancha buck and breed him to my, you know, Alpine does or to my Nubian does. It's just sort of whatever 
whatever's the best cross. I look at the individual animal and like, well, here's what her protein production is. Here's what her milk production is. And I want to, you know, improve this in terms of her structure. So this is going to be the best buck for her, regardless of what the breed is. Um, It's really just trying to create the best cheese making goat that I can from the individual pairings. Yeah. I love that, that idea. That's awesome. And everything you've said is just such great philosophy in terms of just trying to create your best milkers, regardless of whether you are breeding a specific breed or, you know, if you're crossing them. So that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Do you have any final thoughts about experimentals that you want to share with people? I mean, I think they're, they're a way to produce a really good dairy goat, which is what we're trying to do. I think there's also, you know, potential there for, you know, we we do have purebreds and we do want to try and preserve purebreds, but I know, you know, sometimes purebred populations get too small and inbreeding gets too high. And I think the ability to to do an experimental can actually help you preserve breeds too. The herd I worked with in France raised Poitvin and that breed almost went extinct at a point. And so they brought in British Alpines, which is the phenologically the most similar and they were able to bring back their breeding population just with a little bit of influx from an outside breed. So I think, you know, there's some strength in using the experimental as well, just to be able to preserve genetics that might otherwise disappear. So I I think there's a lot of value in crossbreeding in terms of, yeah, just kind of creating an ideal goat for whatever your purposes are, but also for making sure we can keep some of these old breeds around too. I think they're just really useful animals. Awesome. This has been so much fun. I really enjoy this. I loved hearing about your business as well as your goats. Thanks so much for joining us today. How can people find you if they want to connect with you? Well, our website for Penny Royal Farm is www.pennyroyalfarm.com. And that'll link you to the cheese. But then on Facebook, we do have Penny Royal Farm on Facebook as the business. Um, But if you're more interested in the goat side of things, I actually have two Aga registered herds, Royal Penny and Chev Noir. And so if you look for Chev Noir on Facebook, that will take you directly to information specific to the goats. I post on there, you know, what our milk production, who was the highest goats for milk production on test. We've got a test coming up this weekend. So I'll post again, kind of show highlights. So anything specific to the goats, you'll find on the Chev Noir Facebook page. Awesome. I love it. All right. And we will also have links to all those pages in our show notes as well. Thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit fortheloveofgoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash lovegoatspodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.